ask you if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I've uh, been traveling uh, for, I think, for over 24 hours to get here. I don't can't forget, well, I know what happened with uh, COVID. A lot of airlines have cut back on a lot of the routes they're doing. I used to be able to fly directly from California to Manchester, but now to get here is a little bit more challenging. But uh, if you would go to uh, Romans, and I want to pick this up in chapter 8, verse 31. I want to I want to kind of speak into the fact that in the body of Christ, not just in life itself, but the body of Christ, we're facing uh, in the Western world more and more real challenges to be upfront about Christianity. You know, there's places in the world today, such as uh, Afghanistan, Iran, uh, the underground church in China, Nigeria, uh, the northern part of Nigeria, where, you know, if you're uh, bold, if you're upfront about being a Christian, if you testify, share the gospel with people, uh, you're putting your, your life on the line. I had a uh, opportunity two summers ago uh, with a invitation-only, under-the-radar uh, set of meetings with uh, one of the apostolic leaders from uh, the church in Iran. And if you don't know what's going on in Iran, you really need to be aware of that. It's uh, uh, one of the most significant nationwide moves of the gospel has been happening in Iran for about the last six, seven years now, literally to the point where many of the mosques in many cities and communities are almost empty. The home group church there is just exploding with the gospel. But having said that, there is still incredible persecution uh, against Christianity. And uh, we've got children present, so I just want to be very careful how I phrase that. But both uh, when, when someone gives their life to the Lord Jesus Christ in Iran, it's understood... <laughs> It's understood that if you're arrested uh, by the religious police, number one, whether you're male or female, you are going to be tortured. Um, and again, I'm putting this very diplomatically with an electric cattle uh, prod uh, put into parts of your body. And then you will be killed. But in the face of that sort of persecution and threat of persecution, uh, it's just wild how much the gospel is moving there. And so in the Western world nations, you know, United States, Canada, Britain, Europe, uh, you know, we have not really faced overt persecution. Maybe for some people on their job, uh, maybe they have not been given a promotion because maybe everybody else in their work team is our partiers and all that sort of thing. As a Christian, they don't quite fit in. But by and large, we have not faced really overt uh, persecution. But that's changing now, and almost week by week, we're reading about uh, whole new things coming against uh, people that are standing up front for their faith. And it's not just, I'm not just talking about the political realm or social media or being visible here or there, but in our own lives and life of the church, there is so much warfare uh, uh, increasing against um, the spread of the gospel, seeking first the kingdom of God. And so I want to try to make this message both personal for us as people in our lives, our marriages, our families, 
but also in seeking first the kingdom of God as a church. So uh, Romans chapter uh, 8, I want to start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul's been speaking about trials and tribulations in life. He said, what shall we speak about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are a few churches that if somebody read a passage like that, people will be throwing hats and babies in the air saying, Hallelujah, Amen, Glory to God, but we'll keep going in Durham, England here. So, this is a very obviously strong, emphatic passage about that the reality of God's love cannot be separated from us. And if the love of God, one person's excited, (laughs) and they're an elder, so they have to be, but... uh, If we understand that the love of God is with us without failing, it puts us, hopefully, in a whole different mindset about the challenges we face. And again, personal challenges, challenges come against our families, challenges against us as individuals and representing Christ Jesus, challenges against the church. I, uh, one of the, uh, I think we'll have some of my books available, uh, tomorrow maybe and Sunday. But one of the books, um, in fact, the most recent book I wrote, uh, wrote about came out about seven years ago. I didn't understand at that time how prophetic it would be or how much need would there be for it. But it's called Breakthrough in Times of Breakdown. Not Breakdown in Times of Breakthrough. We're already good at that. We don't need anointing for God from that. But God's breakthroughs he had for us in times of breakdown when everything is going uh, very, very difficult. And as we look through, uh, for example, all the stuff that happened with churches in, uh, during COVID, you know, I was uh, thrilled to, as I've talked a little bit like with Alan on and off the last couple of years and dialogued a bit and even the car ride up from Manchester should tell me how the, the church is doing so well. Uh, my home church in San Diego, um, we, and I understand I'm not trying to compare apples to oranges because you've got a slightly different situation in the UK than what we have in the states, which varies even there state by state. But uh, our governor and our state government came down very, very hard on churches. And we have uh, our uh, our governor has been uh, he's uh, I call him a pseudo totalitarian. Uh, that's that's what he'd love to be. And uh, you can tell I don't have many political opinions. <laughs> but uh, right away it was illegal for churches to meet. Well. 
As a leadership team in our church, we did our homework and with some online messages, and we helped our people distinguish between laws that are righteous as opposed to laws that are unrighteous, between laws that are legitimate as opposed to laws that are illegitimate. And in our church, we are big, big believers in being uh, uh, honoring the law of the land. We're huge on that. We're regularly talking about the spirit uh, that's prevalent in society of lawlessness and not succumbing to that, just doing your thing, whatever it is you want to do. But at the same time, uh, as I said, there's a huge difference between laws that are righteous and laws that are unrighteous, between laws that are legitimate and illegitimate. By that, I mean, do they violate some laws that people come up to, no matter what the supposed emergency, that are violating the Constitution and the stated laws of the individual? So uh, we stopped meeting, like everybody else as a church, in mid, um, mid-March uh, of uh, 2009. Uh, when was it? 2020, right? 2020. My last international ministry trip of that year was I was somewhere here in the UK and then I flew from the UK straight over to Vancouver and from uh, about the 12th of March to about the 16th, I did a, uh, a four-day conference with a Chinese-speaking uh, church and there were literally people in that church that had just gotten off the plane from China. You know, the whole world is talking about, you know, this thing, possible pandemic coming from Wuhan, and I'm right in the thick of it. You know, uh, how do you tell when there's a crisis going on? Well, I've got a good barometer for that now. The the hotel they put me in in Vancouver for that conference in early March or mid-March, it was right across the street from a Costco, large uh, department store, home goods and all that. They kept their hours open late because everybody was freaking out. This pandemic's coming. Everything's going to shut down. There's not going to be food. There's not going to be any supplies. So they were open for 24 hours, 24 hours a day. Well, 24 hours a day, people coming out with huge carts loaded with toilet paper. That's how you know society's falling apart. Everybody's starting to hoard toilet paper. But anyway, uh, I got home on that trip from on March 16th, and many of you remember on March 19th, almost universally all across the globe, all the airports shut down, and that was it for a while. And as well, uh, almost all the churches in the United States we went very state by state, but stopped meeting. But uh, <clears throat> our governor said, uh, you know, uh, churches aren't going to be able to meet for six months. And we really, as a leadership team, uh, prayerfully, not only did we teach on that and uh, doing streaming meetings and podcasts and whatnot, but we sought the Lord. And it's interesting, I don't know how things went down here in the UK, but in California and many of the states of the United States, they were saying shops that sell pot and weed are essential, but church is not essential. Alcohol shops to buy booze. We're essential, but church is not essential, and on and on and on. If ever there was a time in the history of Western civilization, the last 50 years, when people needed to connect with God, it's been over the last three years. In my home state, uh, the teenage rate of suicide increased by 37%. Uh, spousal abuse, uh, child abuse increased by uh, uh, about thir- some 30%. 
It was just, it's just a very horrific time. And we sought the Lord and we said, no, number one, our culture desperately needs God and we're going to be there. We're going to be available. But number two, our God is worthy of being worshipped, no matter what the state may have to say about that. So we started meeting illegally. And uh, we did try to follow protocols and things like that. We had uh, families and groups of people trying to uh, sit at least two or three chairs separating them. And we just went every other row. And we had the, the temperature gauge. You know, I don't know how effective those are. But, you know, they you know, put the thing on your forehead. You know, it's probably just uh, window dressing. But it makes people feel good, right? And you had to wear a mask until you got in your seat, and then you, uh, uh, when you got in your seat, you could take the mask off. We weren't going to ask people to sing with their mask on and pass out from lack of oxygen. But anyway, but uh, we uh, we did that. We have a, a, a large campus with three large buildings, and we and we have a quad uh, in between those three buildings, and so. We rented uh, about a thousand chairs, set them up. We had a professional stage uh, set up and uh, stage lighting, all of that, and we met outdoors. And you can do that in some parts of the world, believe it or not. But we did that for uh, for uh, May, June, July, August, and then late September started getting a little bit chilly. You, what we call chilly, you would say, is a nice hot, hot spring day. <clears throat> but anyway, we moved indoors at that point, and we were definitely breaking the laws there. And we kept getting all these notices by county officials. And uh, one of the things, two of the things we have going for us is, in our community in San Diego, our chief of police is a spirit-filled Christian, and he loves our church because we do so, do so much work with kids at risk in our community. Number two... The mayor of our community is a spirit-filled Christian, and he loves our church. And on top of that, three of the five council members go to our church. So the the, the chief of police, we were talking to him and uh, early on when the complaints started coming in, and he said uh, at any given day he's got a 1,000 complaints of COVID violations sitting at his desk, Every time one would come in about our church, he'd put the bottom of the pile and promise to get to it. There was another large church across town that also decided to go ahead and meet. And uh, the uh, uh, they called the people called the police, so the police went at six o'clock on Monday morning, and no violations going on. So, what am I saying? Am I saying that COVID was not serious? Yes, it was serious. But the problem is, in the body of Christ, I, I saw on a wholesale level, internationally, especially in the Western world nations, this huge gap between what was practiced during COVID as opposed to what was preached Sunday in, Sunday out about faith. And what we've seen firsthand, uh, in, and even in San Diego, because our church has really pursued church unity with many, many churches uh, over the years. But we've seen churches, for example, that, I don't want to say they're liberal churches, but they're churches that are afraid to be outspoken on biblically on the hot topics of the day. You know, uh, Paul said to the elders in Ephesus, the blood of no man's hand is on, uh, the blood of no one is on my hands. Because when I was with you, I gave you the full counsel of God. 
And there's a lot of pulpits today, uh, Bible teachers, preachers, churches that are afraid to really biblically speak into the hot topics of the day um, out of fear of offending people. But I maintain that God is offensive simply because he enjoys being God. He's the great I am, and we're the great we're not. He's, he's never embarrassed about that. Things have not changed. It's gotten very quiet in here, hasn't it? But, you know, the mandate that we're called to pursue is no different than 2,000 years ago when John the Baptist, Jesus, the 12, and the 70 went out and preached, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The issue is, can we do that in love or do we do that with condemnation? No, we do not do it with condemnation. We do it with love and we posture in such a way that we're giving people an invitation to respond to the love of God. But uh, the reason I, I bring all that up is a lot of churches, uh, that even that we're in relationship with in our community, that we know for a fact we love these churches, we do joint prayer meetings and things like with them, but, uh, but and our, our pastors get together once a month and pray together, have breakfast together, so we pursue relationship, but we know for a fact that some of these churches have been very soft on some of the things that God would have them be upfront about. They had a very, very, very hard time once things began to loosen up, getting their people back together. And I suspect it's because for many people, God is a convenience. God is a convenience. It's convenient to hope that he'll bless us in times of crisis. It's convenient to hope that we're going to heaven. But a vital living relationship where our lives are governed by the word of God and we're led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's that's a whole different thing. And as we, the, a reason I, I read this here is trials and tribulation are just, they're just a given, you know. I think it's a little bit funny when some Christians say, if you have enough faith, you'll never have problems. Well, if you never have problems, you never need faith, do you? It's kind of self-defeating there. But Jesus himself said, in this world, you shall have trials and tribulation. I've been um, reading a lot, uh, a few psalms, and one of the psalms I've been reading a lot for the last three months, meditating on and praying about, it says, many, say many, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I, I sure wish the psalmist had put in a few. <laughs> this many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So as Paul wrote out all these things, Paul talked about that we are more than conquerors through him, through Christ and God the Father who loves us. We're not just here to survive, and we're not just here someday to squeak into heaven, but we're here to seek first the kingdom of God. We're here to be a people who bring change. We're actually here to bring people who make history in our culture. Um, it's a little bit interesting. In uh, California uh, has a lot of great things going for it, such as the weather and the mountains, the high desert, the beaches, all that sort of thing. But uh, it's also one of the most, uh, if not the most, liberal state uh, 
And there's been a very anti, in our church, what we consider, and I consider biblically, an anti-child uh, stuff coming down through the state, uh, wanting to indoctrinate our kids and things. I think you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, but as well, uh, there's come more and more anti-church uh, laws uh, coming down from the state in California. And on top of that, there's very high taxes in California. So with a lot of the ungodly emphasis from uh, our state, as well as the very high taxes, there's been a definite exodus of Christian families moving from California over the last five years. They moved to Tennessee, Nashville, they moved to Utah, they moved to um, uh, Idaho, they moved to Texas, all over the place with much less taxes, and it's a, a kind of a safer environment for kids. But because of that, in my home church a year and a half ago, I gave a sermon on, on our weekend meetings that I called California, Praying to Move or Praying for a Move. And see, as we look at the growing crisis of just uh, everything going on in our society today, uh, we can say it's increasingly a post-Judaic Christian society, or we can have the perspective that's a pre-revival society that we're in. And we're here to be those people of change. But that starts right within our own hearts. And so uh, in, in my book, Breakthrough in Times of Breakdown, I identify three levels of faith that as a Christian we can walk in and experience. The first level of faith is a very foundational level of faith. And you don't come into the family of God without this faith. It, I call it Lamb of God faith. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that he gave his life to take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus coming out to the Jordan, he pointed out Jesus to the disciples and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when a person begins to come into and experience and live out of Lamb of God faith, they have an overwhelming faith, an overwhelming conviction that's life-changing, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He did give come from to heaven to earth and gave his life on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He was qualified to be the, the atonement for our sins, but death did not hold him, so he rose on the third day. And then he gave instructions to the disciples, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, then released the Spirit. That's Lamb of God faith. But the problem is, if you never mature beyond Lamb of God faith, a Christian's focus, uh, as far as God's involvement in their life, is all going to be about heaven. It's going to be about escaping the problems here someday, sneaking to heaven, and everything's going to be glorious. It is going to be glorious. It's going to be mind-blown. It's going to be blessings beyond anything we can understand at this, at this point in time. But the mandate we have, again, is to seek first the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So what that means is we not only have the hope and the promise of heaven that means we need to be long-term thinkers, not short-term, there's some meshes there somewhere, but we don't have time for that. But we're not just called to be have a long-term perspective, but we're called to realize that God wants to use our lives and the church to 
bring about a different standard of life. In the kingdom of God, in heaven itself, there's no diabetes, there's no depression, there's no perverseness. And so if we are seeking first the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, whether that sphere of influence we have, it may be our workplace, it's our neighborhood, extended family, whatever it is, we're seeking to bring the quality of heaven on earth as in heaven, and uh, as it uh, on earth as it is heaven, and that only includes physical healings, but it means setting people free from strongholds of depression, anxiety, fear. It means setting people free from demonic deception of what they think is right and what's wrong as far as what's healthy and what's unhealthy behavior. You know, I, I love what the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end of that is death. And we've got so many people going to extremes today trying to find some sort of sense of peace or satisfaction in life, but so much of it is based on demonic deception. And we're here to be voices, again, not of condemnation, but voices of encouragement to righteousness, to wholeness. Are you still alive? So, as we're seeking first the kingdom of God for a change on earth, what does that look like? Well, let's go back all the way, uh, uh, let's go back all the way to Exodus. Let's go to Exodus 14. Moses and the Hebrew people have come out of slavery. They've come out of Egypt. But the problem is they haven't come out of slavery in their mindsets. They are free legally, but they're not free in their hearts, in their souls. Because as it says in Hebrews, they have not united their hearts, their faith of their heart, with the prophetic words that God had given through Moses. That's why they end up turning back, and that generation never crossed to the Jordan. But you know the nine signs and wonders that they experienced, uh, God performed before Pharaoh and uh, everything in Egypt, and finally Pharaoh relented and let them go. But it says in Exodus 14, verse 8, that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Say defiantly. Do you think there's a place for Christians to live defiantly? Not in anger, not in wrath, not in condemnation, but to defy the false standards that society wants to impose on, on everybody. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea uh, by a few names that are hard to pronounce. (laughs) And then when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and beheld the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? 
You see, the people are following church protocol. Church protocol is when there's problems, people complain to the leaders, then the leaders complain to God. That's just what happens here. The people complained to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? You know, we've got had plenty of graves back there. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Do you think they're struggling in the area of faith? Yes, big time. Now, remember what we just read in Romans 8, that God the Father, after giving us his only begotten Son, there is no other need we have that he will not meet. Because any other need compared to the need you had of a Savior pales in comparison. After all the miracles and signs and wonders the Hebrew people had experienced there in Egypt to deliver them, they still doubted the faithfulness of God. So they were no longer slaves legally, but in their hearts there were. In their mindsets they were. They were governed by fear. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul said, God has not given you a spirit of slavery taking you back into fear again, but he's given you the spirit of adoption. You see, as the sons and daughters of God, we are to live and to expect and to preach and teach the love of God the Father. His perfect love, John said, casts out fear. But where there's not the strength of ongoing love, the love of God in our hearts, we're going to be governed by the fear, the fear factor, fear of man, fear of people's opinions, fear of all the what-ifs, fear of all the crises that will come at us. And so they said, isn't this what we said? Leave us alone that we can serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Now, the Bible does not have every single thing that every single person said in their relationship with God. Otherwise, you know, you'd be reading it for 8,000 years, you know. But evidently, Moses began to complain to the Lord, and the Lord rebuked Moses, and he said to him in verse 15, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. The people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And you know the story, that God parted the waters. And by the way, those waters were not what some people want to tell you about ankle deep or 14 inches deep. They were quite high. But the Hebrew people walked across on dry ground, and when Pharaoh and his army came after him, the water caved in and they all drowned. An amazing sign and wonder. But the point is, At a place of impossibility, the power and creativity of God were released. Could it be that sometimes God allows you and I, and maybe even allows the church, 
to end up in places of impossibility so that God can prove his faithfulness, his power, and creativity. One person's nodding their head at me. I'll take that as a hallelujah, you know. Yes, this is just the nature of God. There are no crises in heaven. You may be going through a crisis. It may feel like God's given his cell phone number to everybody else but you, and he's not answering your emails. But there are no crises in heaven. And one of the biggest dilemmas is oftentimes we want our prayers answered instantaneously. But when they're not, we think, well, you know, um, you know maybe I overbelieve the love of God. I hate to tell you, but that's impossible. We had a, a, an amazing testimony that happened about 2008 with the church in Canberra, Australia. And it's a little bit involved testimony, but uh, it's important you know, understand the details to understand why I'm doing this testimony with this message. That around 1997, there was a Christian couple and uh, had two young kids. She worked uh, full-time as a teacher, I believe. He had a good career. And very unexpectedly, uh, she, the mother, came down with severe lupus. It came on very, very quickly. And uh, if you understand about severe lupus, all your joints, everything's just in incredible pain. And in a year, year and a half, she had to quit her job, could no longer work. They lost half their income, and she could do very little housework. And he actually had to get another, a second job, a part-time job, because they'd lost her, her income. And on top of that, because she can do very little around the house, he's having to scramble, a lot of late night Late nights, you know, cleaning the house, cooking food, all sorts of things. And unfortunately, he kind of lost it about a, a year and a half into that. And he abandoned her and the kids. So she's in a real dilemma now. And um, they were living in a different city, but they moved to Canberra to be with family. They began to attend this church I've done a lot with over the years called Vision Christian Fellowship. And it would have been about... Uh, 2001, they're living there now in Canberra, she's at a meeting, <clears throat> and there's a prophetic guy ministering that they didn't have very often at their church, maybe just once every five or eight years, an Australian guy, and he's speaking, then he does, you know, he begins to prophesy over people, and he is calls her up and he prophesies over her. He doesn't know that she has severe leukemia, that she's living in constant pain. Uh, she's living on government substance to just try to get the bills paid a little bit, can barely take care of the kids. He doesn't know any of this. But he says to her that you're going to have the answer to your prayers when you hear the Lord say to you, receive your healing. He didn't even know she had uh, um she had, uh, what am I talking about here? Uh, what? Yes, thank you, lupus. I always want to think there's a wolf, you know. But, but anyway, he didn't even know that, but he said, you're going to have the answer to your prayers when you hear the Lord say to you, receive your healing. Well, she knew exactly what that meant. But the problem was, she did not hear the Lord say, receive your healing that week, that month, that year. It wasn't until about five years later 
and I was uh, doing a series of meetings with the church. The Lord gave me a word of knowledge to pray for people with bone and joint problems. And um, she, along with about 15, 20 other people, came up. And normally in that situation, I would call up some of the leaders of the church, ministry team people, to help me pray for people. But on that occasion, I, I think I, um, as they related this to me, I just prayed for every single person myself. But I was praying for people, saying, Lord, would you release your healing power? Would you, uh, you know, burn away the uh, diseases, whatever it is? I prayed for her, and I was about to turn for her to pray for the next person in line, and she said, you you said something to me that I hadn't heard you say to anybody else in line. In fact, this phrase, I almost never say this, but before I turned away from her, I said, the Lord says to you, receive your healing. At that exact second, all the constant pain in her joint, she'd been suffering for um, 10 years at that point. It was completely gone, completely gone, 100%. She started running around the room, running around the room. And the pastor knew her, knew she had severe lupus, knew how much pain she was in. He goes up to her and says, what's, what's going on? And she, she tells him the whole story that, uh, five years ago or so, uh, you had this prophetic guy come in and, and share, and he prophesied over me, you're gonna get the answer to your prayers when you hear the Lord say, receive your healing. She said, well, Mark was, uh, praying for healing tonight, and he to act like it was going further, but he turned back to me and said, the Lord says, receive your healing. Instantaneously, all the pain is gone. I'm healed. And uh, and the pastor looks at kind of funny. Says, "Well, what's strange about this story is that prophet who we have has not been back with our church for five years since he prophesied. He heard Mark was going to be in town, and he's sitting in the back of the room. So they brought him up and her and told the whole story. But here's the real kicker: that about three or four years after she'd had that prophecy that meant the Lord was going to heal her, she was still just living in incredible pain. And one night, she'd managed to get the kids in bed, and she'd managed to do a little bit of cleaning the kitchen, and she was taking her nightly shower before she went to bed. And even for her to take a shower, it was very difficult, all the moving around, the pain it caused in her joints. But she began to worship the Lord, and she said, Lord, you know the heartbeat of every ant that walks to the surface of the earth. You gave the name to all the stars in the heavens. You know my needs, and even though I'm still in pain, I know that you're bigger and you have a plan. And, you know, this is a woman that did not just have what we would call Lamb of God faith, that when she gets to heaven, everything's going to be okay. But she went the distance. She had what I would call Lion of the Tribe of Judah faith. You know, we we sang that song tonight, and it's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a squirrely song. You know, it's kind of a weird song. Uh, don't be shy, oh my soul, you know, and all that. I mean, it's kind of a, I don't know, everybody sings it, so it must be a lot of people who like it, but... But anyway, it's got that line in there. 
I, I see the worship leader. I'm not attacking you leading the song. I'm just, I just think it's a funny song, you know. But, uh, there's a, um, uh, the following line when it says, don't be shy, oh my soul, you know, lift up a, a song to the Lord. It says, because there's a lion inside of you. And there is. That you not only have Jesus as the Lamb of God dwelling within you, but you also have Jesus who's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And there comes a point where we can be dealing with severe personal problems uh, as a church in our mission to extend the gospel. It can come at us, uh, you know, in all the ways that things are coming against everybody today. But I'm not saying that we ignore the problems, <clears throat> and I'm not saying every problem is very, very easy to take in stride. But in the midst of the problems, our focus cannot be on the problems. Our focus has to be on God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Because the things that are impossible for us, like that woman in Canberra, Australia, being healed of lupus, the things that uh, science, medicine, and whoever cannot do for you, that's never a challenge for God. Are you still alive? So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter uh, 4. I want to give you a bit of the background uh, why this will make sense. In Acts chapter 3, early on, uh, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and James, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, had performed a miracle. And it created a total uproar in Jerusalem because this is a man who was a lame beggar and all of his life, his adult life anyway, he had been begging at a certain entrance to the temple. And uh, what that means is Peter and John, who were teaching daily with the apostles of the temple, had probably walked by that man dozens and dozens of times. Jesus himself had probably walked by that man at least six times. But that day, something was different. Now, one of the things, uh, one of the reasons I brought up that story about the woman healed of lupus is... Her healing didn't happen right when she thought it would be. Even when she had the prophetic word, she knew God was speaking to her, but still, that week, that month, that year, not till five years later, didn't happen. That faith is not just something we turn on and turn off. We walk in faith, but there's the parallel side, the other side of the coin, that faith is a gift that God gives us. And as you believe God, as you seek God for the trials and challenges, or it could be opportunities to minister to pray for people, you seek God, but all of a sudden there come those moments where he gives you the gift of faith. And that's what happened. As I said, because the apostles were teaching daily in the temple, they had probably walked by this man dozens and dozens of times. But something was different that day. The Holy Spirit, so to speak, turned on the light switch. And they looked at him and said, silver and gold 
have we none. But what we have, we give. Stand up and walk in the name of Jesus. In point of fact, they did not pray for him. They commanded a healing. And there's a difference there. I'm always happy to pray for people who need healings. But I'm not going to speak a word of, of, of command unless I know the Holy Spirit saying to do that. Because otherwise you can give people false hopes, can't you? I... <clears throat> Norway is a country I've done a lot of ministry in, and a number of years ago in Bergen, Norway, uh, we used to do a lot of conferences there with five, six churches, seven churches together, and uh, we'd done a lot there for about 10 or 15 year period, and so a lot of people in the churches knew me. Well, the executive secretary of one of the key churches that, that, that would put on these conferences we were doing uh, she and her husband had a grown daughter who uh, was in her early 20s living in Oslo. By plane, Oslo is about 45 minutes, an hour away from Bergen. It takes uh, days to drive because the mountains, uh, it's very mountainous there. But um, uh, she was talking with her parents, and they said, yeah, we've got this conference going on with Mark. And she said, oh, I need to go to that. Now, I want to tell you about her. She had been born with severe stomach problems. She was in her early 20s. She'd already, once as a child, once a teenager, had two major operations, but she was waiting to have a third operation. She lived with so much discomfort in uh, because of her stomach pains that she could not work. She was living on, on welfare, just had a small apartment, kind of had a very basic, simple lifestyle. She couldn't do much, very limited by the pain factor. And she was actually scheduled to have an operation in about three or four months' time. But when her mom was on the phone telling her that we were going to have these, uh, this conference, she felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, you've got to go. So as, as troubling as it was, problematic because of all the stomach pain she had, she uh, flew to Bergen. And her parents actually picked her up from the airport and took her straight to the first meeting. And she got there about halfway through worship or something. And uh, uh, she is just really walking in obedience to what the Lord had told her to do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that someone would get on a plane and fly to hear me speak. But actually, that wasn't why she flew there. She flew there because the Lord said, I'm going to do something with your stomach. So I can remember this, even though it was a number of years ago, just like it was yesterday. I had called people up for several different areas, but I was praying for people with bad backs, like on the right-hand side of the room. And, you know, if you good-sized church, if you say everybody with bad backs come up, you've got two-thirds of the church, don't you? So there was <clears throat> there was a lot of people there. But uh, in the middle of praying for the people with bad backs, before we finished praying for them, the Lord... Uh, said, stop. And he said, right now, there's someone that's in incredible pain in their stomach. They've had two operations, and they're scheduled to have a third operation. I want to heal that person right now. So I walked a little bit away from that crowd, and, and I said, there's somebody here. Uh, you've already had two operations in the last 15 years or so on your stomach, but you live in constant pain, and you're scheduled a few months to have another operation. Who is it? And it was this this gal. She was sitting in the very back. She raised her hand. 
and the Holy Spirit just flooded me with faith. I didn't even wait for her to get up out of her seat and come forward. I said, right now, you're healed in the name of Jesus. And she was 100% completely healed. She walked out of that meeting pain-free. She never had that third operation. Now, it'd be great if uh, about 20 or 30 of those sort of things would happen every meeting. But uh, just like Peter and John, you know, they had walked by that man many, many times. But that day, something was different. And so... Uh, this crowd, because everybody in Jerusalem knew about this lame beggar. They walked by him going to the temple for years and years. It created almost a riot, and people went running to Peter and John, treating them like they're gods. And they said, why do you look at us as if we performed this miracle? They said, it is faith in the name of Jesus who has made this man perfectly well. Well, they ended up getting arrested by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and they're threatened not to preach the gospel anymore. Well, we think about persecuting the early days church, this is just old hat. Well, actually, it wasn't. The early days church in Jerusalem had experienced no persecution from aside uh, from the time that Jesus was arrested and crucified. From that point to this point of the early days church, Many years have gone by. The church has been growing tremendously. There's been no persecution. But this is actually the beginning of persecution. So the question is, what did the church do? It says that when Peter and John uh, were released, they gathered the saints together, a lot of people, and they prayed. But what did they pray? Did they, Lord, save us, Lord, from this persecution? Lord, you know, give us a cave in the hills to go into. Uh, Lord, should we go into seeker-sensitive Christianity? You know, should we water the message down a little bit? No, I want to. I want to read to you what they prayed, and you can find this in Acts chapter four. And uh, I'm going to just look at the last. All of Acts chapter four is really their prayer, but I just want to look at verses uh, starting verse 27. They prayed for truly in this city. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, Again, I've said twice now, and I'll say it one more time, I believe we can say the very hard things. I believe we can say it in love, we can say it in humility, we can say it as an invitation to respond to the love of God. I I don't believe in condemning people. But the reality is, is the body of Christ today in the Western world, we need a healthy dosage of Holy Spirit boldness. The, it's interesting, in the, in the book of Proverbs, it says, the righteous shall be as bold as a lion. Why the lion? Well, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when you look up in the Hebrew, what that word bold means, it does not mean pushy, obnoxious, arrogant, but what it literally means 
is free from concern about what other people are going to think about you. You know, in this so-called council, uh, council culture age we live in, so many people, you know, uh, fear of rejection, fear of being labeled. Who gives a rip? Come on, who gives a rip? There's only one person whose opinion about you really matters. And that is God Almighty. We say, well, what if all these people get against me? Well, what did we look at in Romans 8? What do we start off with? If God is for you, who can be against you? It's more important that we are getting are popular in heaven rather than popular with man. Mark, that was a particularly good point you made. Do not be discouraged by those blank looks. <laughs> are you alive here? Now, obviously, we've all got jobs and we all uh, are in situations that, you know, you do have to, you know, uh, use a bit of discernment when you say. But taking that, even taking that in consideration, the fear factor that plagues so many people today, that's not the heart of God for you and I. God's perfect love casts out fear. He wants us to be as bold as a lion. And I believe increasing. Um, Has has the Jesus Revolution movie made it over here? Uh, Not yet. Okay, well, when it comes, I'd encourage you if you get an opportunity to watch the Jesus uh, Revolution movie. It's pretty much, it's not completely accurate, but 95% accurate of the beginnings of the Jesus movement in California. And uh, despite the fact that it's a Christian movie, it's very well done. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when people say, hey, there's a great new Christian movie, I'm like, uh, you know, I've just seen too much cheesy stuff that the cheese factor is, is, you know, fluffed over because it's spiritual. You know, let, let's do all things for the glory of God. That's another message. But the point is, uh, the Jesus Revolution, it's very well done. There was a lot of money put into it. There's some great acting. The cinematography, the sets are all great. But what it powerfully portrays, that in Southern California in 1966, there was a whole generation emerging that could not buy in to what, how their parents were defined truth, defining truth. They wanted to experience truth. And so they were turning to hallucinogenic drugs. They were turning to Eastern mysticism. They were turning to promiscuity to try to find a sense of truth. Well, how many of you know it's not just nature, but heaven abhors a vacuum. And so where that vacuum of truth comes in, Jesus, the truth himself, swept in. And from 1966 to about 1972, 73, literally hundreds of thousands of people in California, just in California, not to mention around the world, but hundreds of thousands of people between 15 and 30 years old gave their lives to Lord Jesus Christ. And so many churches were planted out of that. It was just incredible. But the movie powerfully portrays that hungering a generation had at that time for truth and how the Holy Spirit moved and the gospel moved 
to release that. But I would say to you, there's a parallel today as we see all the confusion going on about identity, whereas it was truth 60 years ago people are desperate for, now they're desperate for their true identity. So guess what? They're experimenting. They're experimenting, trying to find some sort of sense of identity that will give them peace and a sense of fulfillment in life. But the same void is here today that was there 60 years ago, and we're on the verge, I believe, of a fresh move of the gospel, a powerful move of the gospel. And how we can be prepared for that corporately as a church is to pray the two things they prayed here in Acts 4, 28 and 29. That they said, Lord, you see that, you know, they, they did. Your, your, their hand was free to do whatever you predestined. But Lord, look now upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's number one, a boldness to preach Jesus. But number two, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That I believe, particularly in the area of healings and miracles, signs and wonders, God wants to continue to bring a greater and greater awakening to the church. Because the Bible refers to healings and miracles as signs and wonders, as even with somebody that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. When a miracle happens, it's a sign that there is a being more powerful than science, technology, medicine, and all of that. But it makes them, when they see that sign, it makes them wonder what sort of being, who we know as God Almighty, would do something like this. And so they're called signs and wonders. Um, uh, a church I used to do a lot with in Dayton, Ohio. I was doing uh, three or four days of meetings with them. And uh, on the Sunday morning, they had two services Sunday morning, and they had limited parking. And so it was paramount that you finish preaching on time for the first service so people would have time to uh, get in their cars, get out to make room for the second crew to come in. Uh, but not only was I preaching, but I was preaching on healing and miracles, so I had to have time for pray, to pray for everybody. But I had uh, uh, preached a little bit too long. And so I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I can't just preach about healing. We have to pray for these people. But how can we do this now and get everybody out, you know, the parking lot, so the second uh, uh, crew can come in? And I got an idea. Rather than... Uh, say, you know, if you have this problem, we'll pray for this, and later we'll pray for that problem, and all that. I just said, everybody that you need healing because of a long-term health issue, whether it's disease or from a accident, damage, whatever it may have been, anybody that's been in long-term need of a health issue, come up. Well, about a hundred people came up. And then I said, and I said, okay, everybody that did not come forward, stretch your hand to them. So there were about 900 people there in the church, 100 people up front, 800 people all stretching their hands. And I led the 800 in a corporate prayer. We prayed a prayer of blessing and healing, breakthrough, deliverance, and all sorts of stuff. And it was great. We did the whole thing in about three minutes. (laughs) 
so got everybody out of there. But this is one of the testimonies that came about. There was a guy by the name of Kevin who about 15 years before had been in a bad uh, car accident and he had shattered his uh, uh, right elbow and had been broken in three areas as well as small bone particles and things like that. He'd had a couple of operations. They had never been able to get it right. And so he had very limited range of motion with his right arm and very little use. In fact, most of the muscles in his right arm were atrophied. He could not straighten his arm out more than this, and he could not bring his back uh, hand back towards his shoulder more than this. And he had just learned to compensate with his left side. So when I said everybody in term along in, in need of a long-term healing, healing for long-term issues, come forward, he didn't even think about coming forward because he had just learned to live with it. But, as I said, everybody who did not come forward, stretch out your arms. His arms stretched all the way out. He's looking at this and said, well, I haven't been able to do this in like 15 years. And he brings it back. He can touch his elbow. And literally, right in front of his eyes, the atrophied muscles filled in. So he goes running out to the foyer of the church where his 17-year-old son, who's in the young adults meeting, is supposed to meet him. And he says, look at this. And his son remembered, you know, as a young uh, boy, you know, playing with dad's arm, trying to straighten out dad's arm. No matter how much he pulled, he couldn't get dad's arm to straighten out. They're just, you know, mystified by this. So rather than go home, they drove to his Kevin's brother's house. His brother and his brother's wife were not Christians, but they knew, they knew what he'd been suffering with 15 years. And so they walk in the house and say, look at this. And they said, what happened? I said, Jesus, the Holy Spirit came on me in church uh, just, you know, half hour ago. And they're just amazed. They said, we're going to come to church next Sunday. Two of Kevin's co-workers who knew him very well, knew he had limited problems with arm and atrophy and muscles, he showed them. So the following Sunday, uh, we had uh, Kevin's wife and his son and two of his co-workers and their spouses. Six people came. They all got saved. Now, if many of you have done ministry or at least heard stories that, you know, when God does a sign and wonder in places like in India or Africa, certain parts of South America, I mean, I've, I've been in remote uh, bush villages in, in Africa where we've seen half of a village get saved in one night just because of a few miracles. We're not going to see, at this point in time anyway, that sort of response. But I tell you what, one healing, six people getting saved, that's a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good deal. And you know, as, as Paul said, always be prepared to give reason for the hope within you. Our hope is not just that someday we're going to heaven, but our hope is experiencing the reality of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Good point. <laughs> He's an elder too. The elders have to be excited. So... I want to just look at one more scripture before we pray. So turn with me to John chapter 11.
So I, I, I made the, the comment, and maybe you thought I was saying it rather flippantly early on in the message, that uh, uh, God has a very different perspective of, of, of our crises that we're going through. Jesus was very good friends with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. Jesus and disciples would stay at their house and Martha would cook his favorite meals. We were traveling through that part of uh, Israel. And uh, it says in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And the sisters sent to him a message saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, you all have jumped to the conclusion. You, you know what happens, that Lazarus dies and Jesus stands for the tomb and says, roll away the stone. And uh, if you remember the story, Martha said, well, by now the body's going to stink. He's been dead for four days. But as you said, roll away the stone, and he shouts, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, even with the grave clothes covering the, covering his face, walked out of that tomb completely alive. And the story spread throughout all of Israel. But I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up tr- just trying to make a simple but important point that when we are going through a crisis in our lives and God does not immediately bring about the answer we want, that does not mean he's not working. That does not mean that he's not preparing you for a future moment of miraculous breakthrough. He said to, he said to disciples, this illness does not lead to death, even though Lazarus did die, in fact, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Think about for a moment uh, Joseph. Joseph's only real sin was having a big mouth. You know, he had that dream from God that his, uh, you know, symbolically his mother and his father and all of his brothers were going to bow down to him. If he just kept his mouth shut, you know, probably wouldn't have gotten so much trouble. But anyway, he said, hey guys, what do you think about this? Well, what they thought about it was they beat him up, they threw him in a pit, and they sold him to some slave traders passing through. And so Joseph spent many years living as a slave, and then uh, when he uh, began to emerge with some success, being steward of a wealthy man's house, uh, some false accusations were made against him by that wealthy man's wife, and he was thrown in prison. Again, through no fault of his own. He is just uh, suffering, suffering, suffering. This lasted quite a long time. Why did God allow that when essentially Joseph was a righteous man? Years later, and you know the story that Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream that the seven lean years and the seven fat cows and the seven uh, lean year cows were going to be symbolic of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. He interpreted that by the Holy Spirit, and uh, he also had wisdom from God for Pharaoh what to do about how to 
set aside a higher grain tax and set it aside so each have plenty. And Pharaoh put him in charge of, in fact, everything except he didn't have authority over Pharaoh. What that meant was Joseph was the second most powerful person in the world at that time. Years have gone by, and now they're in the lean years, and his brothers, his 11 brothers, hear that there's food, there's grain in Egypt. So they come to uh, Egypt, and being outsiders, they, by law, they had to make their appeal to Joseph, who was in charge of everything. Years have gone by. Joseph has matured physically. They don't recognize him. And, you know, even if they thought they'd recognize him, there's no way their brother Joseph could be the second most powerful person in the world under Pharaoh. But finally, Joseph reveals that he's their brother. Their first thought was, he's going to have us killed. Because that's what kings did in those days. If somebody defied you, if somebody opposed you, if somebody rebelled against you, you would have them killed. It wasn't just a random thought, a random fear they had. That was a very likely scenario that Joseph, with that much power, would have them killed. But Joseph looked at them and said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So that God has put me in this place. And rather than killing his brothers, he had mercy upon them. Over those years of slavery and then imprisonment, Joseph learned the nature of Christ. The picture of that is Jesus hanging on the cross, looking at all of humanity that had falsely accused him and then crucified him with great pain, great torment, gasping for breath, saying, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. In a sense, Joseph was a little bit of a picture like that, facing his brothers who'd sold them into slavery, saying, I forgive you. If Joseph had just given in and done what kings normally would have done, had his brothers killed, it would have stopped the whole lineage of what God had intended from Abraham all the way to today, that even Jesus is in that line of descent. It would have stopped God's plans. God would have come up with a different plan, of course. He's not limited, but you understand what I'm saying. And so, again, why did Joseph unjustly have to go through all of that? It was to learn the ways of Christ for a future season of incredible blessing. The same may be true in your life and my life. And so, you know, uh, they're, the disciples looking and said, well, he's dying. He's sick unto death. They want you to go right away. And he's just saying, no, it's, it's not that big a problem. You know, this is for the glory of God. And if you know the story, I'm not going to read it, but uh, finally, several days later, he says, okay, let's go. They get there. And first Martha came out, and she gently rebuked Jesus. She said, why didn't you come sooner? You could have healed them. You're going to every Tom, Dick, and Harry in all of Israel, healing them. Why couldn't you come pray for Lazarus, whom you loved? And uh, again, Jesus talked about if you believe, you would see the glory of God. And then Mary came out, 
Mary, who just loved Jesus, loved sitting at his feet, just gazing upon him, listening to him, she rebuked him again as well. She said the same thing. If you had come sooner, you could have healed him. But when Jesus finally stood before the tomb, roll away the stone, and shot Lazarus come forth, <clears throat> that story circulated throughout all of Israel, and it says that's when the religious leaders began to plot to have him killed. Because now he's not just healing the sick and casting out demons, he's raising the dead. There's no stopping this guy. Could it be that as we face crises in our lives, as we face challenges as individuals in our marriages, our families, whether financially, relationally, politically, governmentally, persecution, could it be that God allows these things, number one, because they're an opportunity to express and extend the kingdom of God, but number two, it's an opportunity in the midst of all the confusion, in the midst of all the questions, to become a little bit more Christ-like. About five of you think that's a good point. We're, I wish we had a week for this message. We'd get somewhere. So, number one, in the face of all the anti-church stuff that's raising up in the world today, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Our mandate has not changed to preach Jesus. And God even wants to give us a boldness to preach Jesus. To seek first his kingdom on earth as, in, as it is in, uh, in, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. But secondly, God wants to empower us with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the same tools that he gave the disciples, he still wants to give us today. I'm glad you're in agreement on that. But thirdly, whatever crises you may be going through, it's not a crisis in heaven. God is already working the thing out for his glory. Okay. Let's go have dinner. <laughs> Let's stand. Now, I've, I've told, uh, uh, can I have the, either the, uh, keyboardist or a guitar player or somebody come on up. Uh, they really look like they need some elevator music. Take them up. So. Um, I want to pray for a couple of, of groups of people tonight. And I, I told the story about lupus. I don't know if anybody here suffers at all from lupus or ongoing joint. Could be crippling arthritis. But I, I do believe there's a uh, a grace here tonight for uh, people with long-term uh, uh, physical problems. And it could have come about like that guy Kevin from maybe you in a car accident or stress-related things from years ago. Or, you know, it could be a, a generational sort of thing like arthritis or bad backs. could be a sports injury that you had years ago, leg problems, knee problems. I believe there's a grace tonight for long-term physical problems. But as well, I believe the Lord, and I, I, we're going to be doing this tonight, we're going to be doing some in-depth training tomorrow in regards to healing and miracles, because I, I know this church, and I'm, I'm convinced that the Lord wants to um, 
bring a, a significant increase with you all in not only receiving healings and miracles, but being used by God to release healings and miracles. But uh, one person's excited. I don't know where that voice is, but praise God. Uh, but uh, the, the other thing is, I believe the Lord wants to uh, give, uh, just as we talked about, you know, uh, a Holy Spirit boldness to share Jesus with people. 1 John 4.18 says, God's perfect love casts out fear. And there is so much rejection in society today. Even many Christians live with a stronghold of a fear of rejection. And so a lot of times we hedge our bets and we're afraid to say what we know needs to be said in certain situations. And I want to encourage you with everything within me. We're surrounded by a culture that whether they realize it or not, they are desperate for Jesus. They are desperate for Jesus. Right now, they may, they may be so wrapped up in demonic deception, they may be thinking Jesus is the very last thing they want in their lives. But Jesus is the one that gives peace that passes all understanding. He is the one that releases the love of the Father. He is the truth of all truth. He is the friend that everybody is desperate for. And so uh, we're going to pray for those three things. I believe uh, the Lord's going to do some healing tonight of long-term problems. Number two, I believe the Lord's going to uh, anoint some of us with the power of the Holy Spirit because he can use all of us for praying for the sick. In fact, he wants to use you if that's your heart's desire. In uh, Maybe not every day, maybe not even every week, but in from time to time in your job situation with people or your neighborhood, extended family. But also, he wants to give some of you a fresh filling of the power of his Holy Spirit, a fresh boldness, because the righteous should be as bold as a lion. Are you all alive here? Good. So uh, this would be a great time to turn to the person next to you and say to them, excuse me. Now say to them, normally when I'm about to get a download from God, I need more room than you're giving me right now. Just uh, let's spread out a little bit. Just close your eyes. Hold your hands out to the Lord. Would you pray out loud after me? Father God, I don't want to live in fear. I want to live as more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. Lord, help me to be a man or woman who knows how to go the distance. Would you fill me right now with the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you fill me with a fresh revelation of your perfect love that casts out fear?
just close your eyes right now and allow the Father's love to fill you right now. Just allow the Lord to fill you right now. I can see the Holy Spirit and some of the people in the back of the room, some of the people at the front, the right or left. And I I feel like the Lord wants to say something to a few of you right now. God is not a respecter of people. It's so easy if you read a book or you hear testimonies of someone that God is always using for evangelism or always seeing healings and miracles, saying, well, that's just them. That's not me. God is not a respecter of people. If you have a desire to be used by God in evangelism, or you have a desire to be used by God in releasing healings and miracles, guess what? He probably put that desire there. And He wants to fulfill that desire. So, right where you're at, in the name of Jesus, I bless you to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. I bless you to have a Holy Spirit boldness to be able to say the hard things, to say them in love, to say them in grace, to say them in kindness. But I bless you to have a boldness to say the things that normally you would find awkward to say. Just allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. Don't be in a hurry.